Hi, I'm Ari Redboard. Welcome to TRM Talks. In April, the U.S. Treasury Department issued a 42-page illicit finance risk assessment of decentralized finance, laying out various money laundering risks in the DeFi ecosystem and asserting that the Bank Secrecy Act, the U.S. anti-money laundering regime, applies to DeFi services. At the end of the risk assessment, Treasury sets forth a series of questions. Today, TRM Talks is joined by three of the leading voices on DeFi policy and regulation. Rebecca Reddick, Chief Legal Officer of Polygon Labs, Michael Mosier, co-founder of Arcturos and former acting director of FinCEN, and Jay Ramaswamy, Chief Legal Officer A16Z and former DOJ money laundering chief to discuss the questions posed in the Treasury risk assessment. Um, it's interesting. Um, Michael, I'm going to kind of dive right in. Usually we do all this. Tell me about your crypto journey. <laughs> Everyone knows you guys. We know each other. Um, so I, we are going to dive right in because I think the people really want to hear from, from the experts here. It's, it's sort of an odd document in many respects, right? It's not guidance. It's certainly not regulation. Um, and it poses questions, but it's not a consultation really looking for answers. So I think sort of one thing I thought would be cool about this was to try to answer some of these questions with, you know, obviously, the, you know, key players in the space. But if you could sort of, you know, having been in the roles you were at Treasury and DOJ, can you talk a little bit about what this is in your mind and what Treasury is really trying to achieve here? Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Ari. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I do think it's good that we're framing this up first and um, and also trying to answer the questions, uh, which is great. But I think in terms of sort of context setting, I'd make a quick observation and then get sort of more directly to the answer. But I think the first response, if you ask me to describe it, is I think the fact that it's a risk assessment, I would describe it as the right thing to do um, before taking any action, whether that's regulatory or other policy action. And I think it is important to credit Treasury for assessing the risks before prescribing any new rules or restrictions. Um, and I think that makes sense if you if you think about the financial integrity framework and, and basically every financial integrity regulation approaches risk management as first you define the risk for your operating environment before you set up any controls to reasonably manage it. So I, so I do want to credit Treasury for that. And I think that's really how I see this in a, in a regulatory environment is, is sort of them assessing the risk first. And I would say that you know, if there's one thing I'd ask of legislators in the in the illicit finance space is that they would sort of let these subject matter experts study and define the risks and then place them in this context of competing priorities and severity and make recommendations before sort of legislators jump in in the context of, of sort of opining on eliminating risks in this space. You need to prioritize and define them first, which I think to your to your specific question is really what Treasury was doing here is starting to look at how do we define these risks and also how do we put them in a priority context that everyone's operating in. And I, and I think to Treasury's credit, they candidly and responsibly noted in the risk assessment itself, this risk assessment assesses that most money laundering, terrorist finance, ter proliferation finance is, is by volume and value more in fiat currency and otherwise outside of virtual asset ecosystem. And then I think even within that, they say DeFi services account for a relatively small portion of the total activity of virtual asset markets. And they actually assess it, DEXs at accounting for about 3% of virtual asset volume. And I think that's really important, that sort of intellectual honesty from them doing the work um, that they should be credit for. And that goes to your question of what do we, what is this and what do we make of it? I think this is that sort of first step, which is a consensus report across Treasury with clearance from the National Security Council and others of here's a consensus document that this is where we think the risk lies. Um, and it's a policy document. It's not a regulatory analysis of how the BSA applies. It's a sense of here's the policy perspective that could inform Treasury position with respect to administrative actions, whether that's guidance, rulemaking, enforcement. Um, and I think that should be sort of seen as a helpful signpost of how to prioritize addressing illicit finance risks, which here they've been very clear. First and foremost, the overwhelming majority is fiat, um, followed by centralized crypto. And then lastly, that 3% of virtual asset activity in DeFi um, that would sort of be the lowest priority for industry and policymakers. 
if you're trying to address risks in priority order, which is how every regulatory framework works for illicit finance. Really, really well said and super consistent, actually, not just with the risk assessment, but the way Treasury has sort of talked about it even since, right? We had uh, Caroline Vores, who's a policy advisor uh, at, at, within Treasury, who uh, was one of the writers of the report. And she came on TRM Talks and said, look, this is the beginning of a conversation. Um, and we've all been engaged in those conversations since. And it's I think it's very consistent with sort of your 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 point there. Uh, other folks should, as you, <laughs> this is not a shy group, so I know you'll do this, but other folks should sort of uh, jump in here. But I, I did want to sort of kick things off with Rebecca in terms of the questions themselves. But Rebecca, feel free to do any sort of setting, scene setting you, you want here. But the first question that Treasury asked towards the end of the report is, what factors should be considered to determine whether DeFi services and services, to be clear, is, is Treasury's word. So that's why I'd be, I'm would be i using it throughout. Feel free to use whatever language you want here. Um, but uh, what factors should be considered to determine whether DeFi services are a financial institution under the Bank Secrecy Act? Because that's the, the, the beginning question, right? Does this fall under the current anti-money laundering regime? Yeah, so... I think this is probably one of the trickiest questions. And I do think we need to do sort of what um, Mike did to start us off, which is step back and ask, like, what is a financial institution or what's covered by the Bank Secrecy Act now? Um, and there are a number of things, but they're all things like insured banks, uh, commercial banks, um, broker dealers and securities or commodities, investment bankers or investment companies, Um Insurance, currency exchange, there's a lot um, that falls under the BSA now, um, but they're all what we would think of as true financial institutions, centralized intermediaries. And so thinking about how we put DeFi into something like that is very tricky. Um, the report starts out by saying that there is no general consensus, including within the crypto industry, of what DeFi is. And when I first read the report, I thought, well, that's that's not true. We all do agree what DeFi actually is. But over time, and especially um, through these conversations and others, particularly on AML issues, I do think that the industry may be thinking about DeFi in different ways. And some may be just calling smart contract-based systems DeFi without thinking about where the decentralization part fits in. And so whether you're thinking... Uh, so to step back, one, we do need to think about what DeFi actually is. I define it as a software system that allows users to engage in economic transactions in a self-directed manner without the need to rely on intermediaries or where no third party takes custody of your assets. Um, but I have heard others in the space saying, well, where there's someone doing something centralized in DeFi, what should we do? And so I do think that's sort of the complicated part. And the report does a good job of pointing that out, which says like, not all of these are decentralized. Now, even if you find points of centralization in these smart contract-based software systems, does that necessarily make uh, you know this software system or make that individual or multi-sig holder a financial institution? I think that's a very difficult leap. Um, um, I've talked about this certainly with Mike and um, Jay and I have been in rooms together where we talked about this, but it is hard to say to some to, to people in policy or in the government, like this just it looks kind of like what you've seen before, but it's not the same thing. And so we may be doing a little um, square peg round holing when we say should DeFi services. I don't I don't know exactly what that refers to, um, but I assume it just refers to where individuals can engage with these types of software systems or software protocols through their own self-hosted wallets um, to become a financial institution, because that's a big leap. I mean, to think about whether you're a securities broker versus whether you're a multi-sig holder. So I think um, in terms of the factors to be considered, one, like what does decentralization actually mean? I have my own test. It overlaps with um, what other people necessarily talk about in the space, but it may not be perfect. Um, and I do think that decentralization for a DeFi protocol looks different than what we talk about when it comes to tokens and the how we test and things like that. Um, and two, like what are the responsibilities for anybody who may have a centralized point of contact in these software-based systems? Because they don't think they're necessarily similar to what financial institutions do under the current definition. And just to stop you right there for one second, and I would like you to, uh, to keep, keep going, but I think one thing for folks who are listening is a key to this report, as I see it at least, is this idea that 
centralization is less important than activity. And what we're trying to regulate here is sort of what they're saying is the activity here, financial services is what we're trying to regulate. So what's important in, in, in the discussion that we're having here is that initial definition. Are you engaging in financial services? And then sort of are you a financial institution to be regulated, right? Is that why this is important? Maybe. Feel but, to push back on that. Well, a little bit, but I, I'll, I will push back on it because yeah. um, we're all friends here. But, but if you are engaging in activity and um, you have to go back to the way that financial institution is actually defined, it's defined as a person, which means a natural person or some sort of corporate entity that we're all used to seeing. It does not mean software. And so I don't know how we take the leap from making software a person that is engaging in activity and impose regulations on the software. It's just, that's sort of the most difficult, that is not sort of, that is the most difficult part when you're thinking about where regulation would attach in DeFi. And that's why I'm thinking about points of centralization, because that's where activities occurs through people. Um, and that's why I do think from an ethos perspective, decentralization is obviously very important through Bitcoin and all the things, you know, that brought us to where we are today in DeFi. Um, but from a regulatory perspective, you do need to think about where there, where or if there are points of centralization. And that's why I was thinking about, like, if you're a multi-stakeholder, are you engaged in the same type of financial activities that a securities or commodities broker is? And the answer is no. Uh, and so these are very different types of activities than what we're used to seeing in the traditional financial world. Really, really helpful. So I think that the, the bottom line to some extent is like, hey, what are the activities that are being engaged in here? And that's kind of how we get at least a starting off point to, to determining whether we're engaging with a financial institution um, or, or, or not. Um, Jay, feel free to build on that a little bit, or, or I'm going to sort of delve in. The, 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 I, I, there was a little method to this madness, right? Like you as um, you know, in your role um, in the money laundering section at DOJ, and then at a, a traditional financial institution, right? I, I thought this was sort of appropriate. How can the U.S. government encourage the adoption of measures to uh, to mitigate illicit finance risks? In other words, I think Treasury is trying to figure out here: Hey, we put out this risk assessment. We're speaking to the industry. We're reaching out to DeFi services. But what what should we be doing to encourage AML? Really? Yeah. And so um, I think I would take it in three steps. Um, the first, Michael laid out very well, which is um, figure out what are we talking about? What is the risk here? And then with, with Rebecca's point about what is the activity we're trying to regulate? Those are two key, key components. And the thing that I would say is, again, trying to start from first principles, recognize that the BSA amongst all of the stat regulatory statutes that could apply in this space into financial institutions is a relatively unique um, animal. The, the thing it's trying to accomplish is to make sure um, that law enforcement has appropriate mechanisms to detect and prevent bad activity, right? That's, it's, it's a very kind of targeted approach. And the question you have to ask yourself is, um, and that's why it's, fully a risk-based approach, because if there's very little risk in an area, there's very little benefit to law enforcement from institutions pouring a ton of money into what is a smaller problem when they could be reallocating those resources elsewhere. So there's a, a, a kind of balance here. And I think that the important thing to recognize is that from the point that Rebecca made, what are we trying to actually accomplish here? And And I think it gets back to the terminology itself, which is I think you constantly hear the refrain, and I, I can't, I haven't read the Treasury report, um, and it's not in front of me um, in the last 24 hours, so I can't tell you if this is there, but typically you hear people refer to a decentralized exchange. And I think Peter Van Valkenburg at Coin Center actually made a very good point, which is we're not talking about a decentralized exchange. We're talking about decentralized exchange, <laughs> right? This is the ability of two individuals to interact with each other in a software mediated fashion, as opposed to with a financial institution. And the reason that that's important is that obligations have been placed on financial institutions because in their ordinary course of business, they already have the information that's necessary to satisfy their obligations. And then the question is, is society going to impose on those institutions that for business purposes collect this information to require them to collect a little bit more here or there, but they have those business relationships. You're talking about a system here, which if, if we were to extend the framework 
um, would do something that we've never done before, which would really alter the, the, if you will, the balance between civil liberties and the government, which is we really haven't imposed regulatory regimes of this nature on individuals. We just haven't. Um, uh, we, we impose them on financial institutions that have the ability to collect that information. And so the question is, why are we trying to do this? And then if I back up to Mike's point, I would say, what the government should be doing is exactly what it's doing now, which is it's it's hitting and it's increasingly hitting the biggest sources of money laundering risk. And it's proving that we can, in fact, control the risks in this space using the tools that we've always had. Um, uh, the and, and I think that the, the notion that somehow the DeFi space is going to explode with money laundering is not just mis, misplaced. Um, uh, from a theoretical point of view, from the present point of view, it, it may or may not be an emerging risk, but it's clearly not a huge risk at this point today. Just look at the recent pig butchering scheme, which is a classic kind of crypto scheme uh, that, that and the takedown that happened. It was primarily laundered through traditional financial institutions, and we had the tools to actually take it down. Um, asset forfeiture has become a far more powerful tool in this ecosystem than it can be in traditional finance because all you have to do in, in asset forfeiture to disrupt those flows is identify proceeds with criminal activity. And in most money laundering cases, particularly if they occur in offshore jurisdictions, prosecuting individuals is almost is becoming increasingly difficult. So the interdiction model works well. And what I would say is the government should just be doubling down on the tools it has today to try to extend um, its effectiveness in with tools that we already have rather than trying to extend the regulatory perimeter where there are tremendous legal and potentially constitutional concerns where there are tremendous kind of um so what concerns which is what are you going to get out of this and is it a really good use of both the government and private sector resources which are both limited in trying to attack money laundering um and so i i guess my point would say there's a myth out there that there's nothing being done in this space and that's simply not the case. There's a ton being done in this space. I think your company is 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 at the forefront of doing a lot of this, and we're seeing the results of it. So why not continue down this path while we're monitoring if there is a bigger risk out there that we need to worry about? Which, as as Michael said, the Treasury Department has been incredibly, I think, um, uh, you know, they've had a ton of integrity in this, you know, intellectual integrity in approaching this, and it's it's not there yet. So what are we trying to accomplish? Why are we trying to accomplish it? And that will be my 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 urge. It's, and, and again, you'll get criticized by saying, "Oh, you don't want to do anything." No, I want to do a ton. <laughs> it's just I want to use the tools we have today that are proving to be really effective. And let's double down on that. Let's fund them more. Let's make sure that we have more investigators who know how to do uh, cyber and crypto investigations. And, and not just that targeting where the mo actual money laundering is happening yeah, in right. the ecosystem today, right? The that's on right. and off ramps um, yeah. into more traditional currencies to use. That's uh, right. Rebecca. I just want to put a gloss on what Jay was saying, um, which I love to listen to Jay do all the philosophical stuff on this. So this is a real treat. Well, Obi-Wan um, is how I, I <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, yes. It's really he is all of our Obi-Wan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah. But uh, when you talk about civil liberties, you know, people have talked about this as being peer to peer and Bitcoin is de was definitely is definitely a peer to peer thing. DeFi, I would argue, is not peer to peer. I am not using Uniswap to trade to swap with Mike uh, or with Jay. I am using a fungible pool of assets, which sure. is really just software to engage. So when you're talking about and let's say we're talking about a really decentralized system where you don't have anyone holding a multi-sig or making, you know, but like in a real, the way we really think about DeFi, it's me who's engaging in the financial activity. And to Jay's point, we have not imposed, I mean, in the same way that we impose on FIs, um, financial institutions, AML things. We, you know, as Americans, you are not supposed to, you know, transact with sanctions in individuals or countries. So that remains true. Um, but otherwise, we have not put the same level of doing types of KYC and other checks that financial filing SARS, right, uh, suspicious activity reports that financial institutions have to do. And that's where the creep on civil liberties will come in if you're really looking at who's engaging in financial activity with these protocols. And then I do think Mike and Jay's points are really important is what are we trying to accomplish? And I think if you've 
see and read a lot of what is out there now about DeFi. There's been a lot. Uh, and we know that there are a lot of um, government briefings on this too, that DPRK is specifically using DeFi as their new tool. I mean, it may be one of many tools. They have a large war chest. Um, but you have to think about where and how, if we're really looking at what North Korea has been doing with this type of software, where it's coming from, because it's not coming, to your point, it is coming off of the centralized um, uh, on and off ramps for sure. So that is a good point of it. And then it's also coming, as we have been talking about, Ari, um, through this social engineering, right? Like Ronin was not a hack of code. It was a hack that related to a multi-sig same with the recent multi-chain um, hack uh, or exploit. And so thinking about where those points are um, that may require some additional safety and security, but it's not, as Jay was saying, the same exact tools we've been using with financial institutions. So I think, and just to wrap it all, bring it all to Mike's point, the study is really, really important here before we can make any types of real decisions from a policy or legislative perspective. Yeah. And if I could just make the point about DPRK, Michael can speak far more eloquently on this than, than I can, but let's, let's think about what the real risk of DPRK using DeFi is. The reality is that the amount of money they need to push through these systems, and this is true of Russia and sanctions, et cetera, I think that again, Treasury being intellectually honest and OFAC being intellectually honest, uh, don't see these, these kind of mechanisms as being the primary way that money laundering can take place because for it to, to be truly effective, you need in, you know, pools of, of capital to, to, to Rebecca's point, these are peer to pool transactions, not pure peer to peer transactions. You need, you need a peer, you need a pool of transactions that dwarfs the actual transactions going in or some of the traditional tracing um, uh, techniques that, that you and others use actually work to, to figure out what's going on here. And the maturity just isn't there, quite frankly, in those systems, which is why I think that although they're being targeted, you haven't seen an enormous use of them just because they're not effective systems for, uh, for money laundering large and enormous amounts of capital, uh, through the system. Um, yeah, I think so, that combined. I, I think that combined with just the fact that you still need to off ramp, and it's become harder and harder to do that when you're talking about this right. enormous amount of funds. Plus, quite frankly, tools getting better, uh, law enforcement getting better. It's become harder and harder. We still see, you know, funds being laundered by North Korea from hacks that occurred years ago. It's because they just simply can't find off ramps for it. Um, Michael, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of keep things moving a little bit with you. And this is sort of, I think, one of the dicier questions, because uh, I think we have to, you have to sort of accept a premise and feel free, feel free not to. Uh, but uh, the, the question here is, are there additional recommendations for ways to clarify and remind DeFi services that they do fall under the BSA uh, and their existing sort of a AML, CFT regulatory uh, obligations? So I think this is really a question around how do we ensure that the DeFi ecosystem understands that they do fall under the BSA? Feel free to push back on that or sort of maybe talk a little bit. About, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it to your expert uh, expertise. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I was, I, I sort of read it in my head with an emphasis on that fall under the BSA, um, but <laughs> yeah. I think that- like, That fall. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. I think that's a great way to- I don't know how they intended it, yeah. but, um, but I think that is the, the sort of, reframing that you're inviting which is i would say it's yeah. it's it's not so much reminding sure it's reminding the ones that do i suppose but i think it's really about defining where where that line is and what the obligations are and i think part of that is sort of in terms of recommendations is something that the report itself does very well and i think very honestly and and jay mentioned this too is that it's about conversations and engagement with industry is is the best way to whether it's remind or define um, everybody how at the end, the core goal is managing risk. And there's a, there's a lot of opportunity around that here in this space. And, and by the way, like even as Rebecca points out, you know, so that a lot of this is software, like nothing that, that she or Jay or, or anyone's asking for is exceptional in the actual BSA framework software and communication services have long been exempted in the code itself. Um, you know, communications delivery, uh, I think it's delivery communication and network access um, has, has not been included in the persons that we consider a money transmitter. So it's not, it's not exceptional. We're not asking for any special treatment here. I think it's really 
where where is that line? Um, and I think the best way to get to that um, and to manage risk is that conversations and engagement because one, that's how everybody understands, okay, even Rebecca's point of this, some of this isn't peer to peer, it's peer to, to pool, peer to protocol, it's software. Um, and so having those conversations helps us define that better, but it also helps get alignment on the risks as well as the opportunities of what's happening in this space that there's a lot of na DeFi native, protocol native, software native risk management that if you're the regulator wanting to manage the risk, like you wanna know what that is and, and ways to do that. If you're setting standards for what's reasonable risk-based risk management, you need to know what's out there. If you're regulating banks and you don't know that there's a Cloudflare out there that does DDoS uh, protection, then you're not gonna require that. Um, and I think there's another aspect to that, which is that there's a tremendous opportunity for alignment here, regardless of calling somebody a financial institution or not. Like if you're if you're in the illicit finance space and you're thinking, OK, I, I, as a national security goal, I really need to get software developers to not want to do business with authoritarian despotic regimes like the DPRK, Russia, Venezuela, Syria, Myanmar, Cuba, Iran. You know, how do I get people to do that? There's a massive uh, natural alignment there with a democratizing financial movement here. So we're not asking people to stop eating chocolate. Like we're, we're asking basically people whose ethos is democratization. Can we further democratizing goals? And so I think there's a there's a huge opportunity for a very natural alignment. Um, but if developers fear they're going to be turned into a financial institution, by popping their heads up and doing risk management, you're sort of working against yourself. So I, I think that sort of engagement is the way that we can sort of move all this forward. And Michael, I know that Ari's uh, disappeared for one second here, but um, one thing just to, to build on that is we also have to ask the why, right? Why hasn't the, the BSA been imposed on, um, on software? It's because it's unclear how you would actually accomplish that at the end of the day. Um, uh, if you're a communications provider, you probably don't have the information that even if you're a centralized entity that um, that that the law enforcement is looking for. Um, and certainly if you're a software protocol, you don't have that information. And so the, the, the real question is, what are we trying again, what are we trying to accomplish here? And what are the most effective ways of accomplishing it? And and I think yeah. there's a reason for that same reason that we have never tried to regulate SMTP. Uh, we regulate Gmail with this Can Spam Act and other things like that because it's a company that has business activities that can be regulated. But nobody's yeah. ever thought that we could, you know, um, uh, regulate SMTP or TCP/IP. They're standards, yes, they're standard-setting bodies, et cetera, but not regulation of, of the BSA type in the past. So just just building. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and sort a lot of natural risk management that happens. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, okay. It Hey, Ari, we, we just decided to go ahead. No, just, no I love that's why I love this group. And I froze and you just kept it moving like seamless. Anyway, go, Rebecca. But I do what I will say on the software developer front, which is um, you know, when I was outside counsel and I would represent software developers, you know, sometimes after a hack, some of these software development companies would get third-party subpoenas from the DOJ. Uh, and say, give us all the information about everybody who's, you know, who's used your protocol in these two weeks and things like that. And this was obviously in 2017. And I think the DOJ and the FBI have super sophisticated crypto units now. Um, but even back then, and this was very contrary to how lawyers normally would handle third party subpoenas, where you'd say, we need a more time and we'll get everything with you and you trickle information out. We would just get on calls and be like, here's Etherscan and here's what happened. And here's the information we do have. And it's the same information you have. And um, a lot of times the subpoenas would be dropped because the information that they were seeking, which is like name, address, things like that weren't available, but they were able to at least do a lot of the tracing that they can do now with the help of TRM in an even more advanced way. And so thinking about ways to enhance that and what the benefits may be of this software, notwithstanding some of the exploits we've seen, is I think um, something that may get missed from time to time too. Yeah. I'm going to take the next question for him. The assessment finds that non-compliance by covered DeFi services with AML CFT obligations may be partially attributable to a lack of understanding of how B AML CFT regulations apply. Did we just do that one? I don't think so. 
Um, are there additional recommendations for ways to clarify and remind DeFi services they fall under the BSA definition of an FI? Yeah. Who wants I, that one? Well, look, <laughs> I, I think that part of the part of the issue is that um, this is the one area where I think Treasury does kind of start eliding into things when it says a covered DeFi institution. That's the open question, right? That we're all trying to grapple with is it's what not even institution is covered DeFi services. Service, right? So, so what is covered? What isn't? What should be covered? What what shouldn't be? So, I think it's a bit putting the cart before the horse. But I think the question really is going to come down to how are we trying to mitigate risk in this area? And what does coverage get for you? So, okay, I could declare tomorrow that software services need to comply with the BSA. And I'm not sure, quite sure how they would, why they would have relevant information to law enforcement, what would be the purpose of it. I could then impose a ton of obligations on software providers, but then I'm asking them to collect a ton of sensitive personal information from people. And we already have an enormous cybersecurity problem. So do I really want people who have no experience protecting personal financial data, now collecting personal financial data and exposing all that information to state actors and others that will then target those. So I, I think that's why I think there needs to be a really careful thinking about this. It's not as easy as just extending the regulatory perimeter, as people say. There are second order effects that affect privacy, cybersecurity, the security of our infrastructure, uh, the ability of bad state actors to now further take advantage of systems and and all of those things it seems to me have to be have to be put into the mix and some of those are the benefits right like the you don't have to give over your data you don't have these big honey pots that have been exploited in the past right like those that's why like there needs to be a, a weighing and a waiting and one of the things that we didn't talk about but um that Miller Whitehouse Levine from the DeFi Education Fund has brought up a few times is what about admissibility of evidence from these types of, you know, using DeFi and stuff like that? Like, is that a huge benefit, especially, and, and you both, Mike and Jay, you guys are much better positioned than I am just given, uh, you know, that you've prosecuted these types of cases. But like, are, is this special that and helpful to prosecutors when they're looking at these types of issues from a long-term perspective, from an, ev from an evidentiary standpoint? And I'm back. I don't know why I keep you keep losing me. Good to see you guys. Thank you. We're just for, gonna, we're keeping it going. I, this is, I knew this would happen. This group would be perfect for that. Um, you know, like so. I, I think we've almost gotten to sort of a lot of these questions because we've sort of just you know gone beyond the scope a little bit of, of, of some of the specific ones. But I, I do want to sort of ask, and I, I think we we got to this. But but Michael, I think you'd be particularly perfect for. Um, how can the U.S. AML regulatory framework effectively mitigate the risks of DeFi services that currently fall outside of? And there's this sense throughout the risk assessment that many fall within, but there are a few that fall without, maybe the sort of more clear DeFi, true DeFi. Um, how do we mitigate risk there? And I think you really got to this with, hey, there are new tools being built, and to Treasury's credit, they're 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 talking to those people, right? They're trying to understand digital identity and the effect that it can have here on the ecosystem. But maybe if you can talk a little bit about like what things can be done currently, and maybe to Jay's point, it's outside of the BSA. Uh, it's something different. Yeah, I think so, Ari. I think I think I think there's there's a framework already existing within Treasury itself to some degree that has been grappling with this um, for quite a long time because you know we to some degree. Decentralized finance or, or sort of crypto infrastructure already has has sort of made things more transparent all around, and we talk about things like nodes and 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 how data is processed. But the traditional finance world has been sending and processing data in many many layers of communications infrastructure for many years that we just didn't really talk about. And there's even an office within Treasury called the Office of Cybersecurity and Critical Infrastructure Protection or OSIP, um, that's been looking at vulnerabilities in the financial infrastructure um, and, and how do they address that? And it, it wasn't sort of, okay, we should expand the Bank Secrecy Act and make everyone a financial institution or anything like that. And this partly goes to the, the very natural alignment that's out there when you talk about, from a national security perspective, we'd like to not further despotic regimes. Um, you know, like you don't really need necessarily, and they do have some authorities, but you don't really need that necessarily. What they what they operate, and I've and I've 
had the opportunity to work with them quite a bit. Um, when I was the counselor to the deputy secretary for cybersecurity and emerging tech uh, around solar winds was sort of thinking through how do we do information sharing? Um, how do we share both the vulnerabilities that the government's seeing? How does the private sector share the vulnerabilities? I mean, this is something TRM Labs has done such a great job with chain abuse. I mean, you didn't need to take on regulatory authority to get <laughs> the industry to be sharing risk indicators. You you literally put up the forum uh, and said, hey, we all, we're all in this together. Let's manage risk. And, and a tremendous number of people have said, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to manage risk <laughs> without any sort of regulatory authority. And I think creating those environments, I mean, part of what OSIP does and, and FinCEN does this too with, with 314 authorities is create a safe space to share that information. Uh, and, and credit to you at TRM for doing a lot of that hard work to get people comfortable sharing that information uh, around liability issues. But I think that's a space where, where Treasury can continue to work that doesn't change definitions. It's immediate. You don't need congressional authority necessarily. It's just let's share information. That's It's like you said, new tools. Um, we should know that this is possible. You can, you know, someone like Forda, uh, Sardine, others, um, TRM, obviously, that's, that's Solidus. It's looking at all the different types of risks out there and this data so that folks know what's possible and then creating a safe space to share this information just like we've done with critical infrastructure for many years um, without changing definitions or making them reporting entities. And I think if people feel like there's that safety that I'm not going to become a broker dealer just because I'm trying to manage risk publicly um, as a software developer, you know, there's going to be a lot more propensity to have those conversations. And that's really where we need to be. Really well said, Jay. I've heard you speak uh, on this um, this sort of idea that look the, the the native properties of blockchains, this ecosystem, actually allow for uh, the ecosystem in many respects to police itself and for regulators to sort of harness the that that and, and the power of that. Uh, what are your thoughts, sort of, around this question? Uh, so I, I think that um, two things. One, I still believe that, um, uh, but but more importantly. The, it's not just a question of getting this space to police itself. I think there is an aspect of this that's interesting, which is um, uh, you're seeing a lot more kind of audits of, of on-chain activity done by communities. And so I think that there is a kind of SRO model that might start to emerge in this space, you know, an SRO being a self-regulatory organization. So uh, when we think of regulation, it happens at different layers of the, of the stack. Um, there's sort of, you know, legislation, there's regulatory obligations that apply to centralized institutions. And then there are um, a kind of self-regulatory activities that can take place. And potentially there's there's some um, uh, uh, stuff that can be done there. But, but I think most importantly is to realize that international sharing of information becomes a lot more possible with blockchain-based activity, right? I mean, one of the big problems in financial investigations is how do you share information between countries and there's all sorts of restrictions and you have to go through the MLAT process. It takes forever. Um, uh, you have to ask for financial information. It takes forever. And there's an opportunity here to start leveraging international cooperation in a far more effective way. And you've already seen this happening um, within Treasury and, and within the Justice Department, um, where the native properties of the blockchain actually lend themselves to uh, appropriate financial um, uh, regulatory and financial investigation capabilities. And I think that's, that's unique. We don't see that. And, and it gets back to this, this issue where in many ways, the, the, the financial system that we have today, X blockchain is default private. It's kept on private ledgers. And so the Bank Secrecy Act is intended to overcome those, those privacy issues. What you have in a default public, uh, with the blockchain is a default public set of information. And I think that for that reason, it becomes so much more important to protect privacy because otherwise you've got, you know, problems on steroids. And so I think it's important to, to draw these distinctions between the traditional financial institution, which institutions, which are sort of private by default and blockchain, which is public by default. And as a result, they, they produce much different risks and much different risk balancings that need to, need to occur. Um, and so, uh, I, I do think that there are enormous benefits in the current architecture of the blockchain that allow governments um, uh, uh, you know, uh, communities as well as uh, firms like yours to to 
police illicit activity. And that one of the things we do need to start thinking about is how does that affect privacy? That that's that's something as a society we need to start thinking more carefully about because a default public world isn't necessarily the best world in the world that we all want to live in. Yeah, no, really well said. As more transactions occur in this open way, people are going to want more privacy, not less, which sort of maybe uh, cause more questions around sort of regulation. I, I think I'm going to sort of like toss the, the questions <laughs> for today for a second. Um, and, and really, like, I think what we've, we, I think you guys did an awesome job kind of digging in and answering these, but like maybe put our regulators hat on for a moment and sort of like, what are these the right questions? And assuming in some respects they are, in some respects they're not, maybe just sort of go around and talk a little bit about what are the right questions that we should be asking as we try to tackle this. Because uh, the reality is that, you know, I, I think there's going to be something, there's going to be, these conversations are going to continue. What are the right questions or what are the questions that should supplement these? Rebecca, you want to kick us off? Well, as somebody who has not worked in the government except as a clerk, um, I don't know if I'm the right person to kick us off, but uh, I'll do it. I think you have strong opinions about the questions we should. I do. I, as you were talking, I was first. like, I, well, right. so I'm not going to weigh in on. I think the questions were framed, um, you know, based on the report, which has these ideas of DeFi services and covered DeFi services and things like that, which I think we've all sort of said may not be the right framing, but we understand where it came from. I think the questions are, what are we trying to accomplish? Um, and, you know, Jay has talked a lot about where we are, both from a, you know, traditional financial, um, uh, illicit finance, combating illicit finance place versus, you know, in the crypto world. But what are we really trying to accomplish when we're talking about illicit finance risk in DeFi, especially going back to what Mike said, which is it's pretty far down on the rung. Um, so the question is, what are we trying to accomplish? And two, who could even fathomably be responsible for enforcing what we're trying to accomplish? Um, and three, are the incentives correct if we are going to change who the responsible person is, right? Like if we're going to create this whole new regime, are we setting it up in a way that's both good for society, good for society from a long-term perspective? So those are more like meta questions, but I do think those are the questions we need to be asking. One, because of where the risk is. Um, and Two, because of where the technology and the space is. And three, because of there's a lot that not just DeFi, but all of these systems can really offer um, from a long-term perspective. And I do not think they've reached their full potential yet for a number of different reasons. So we have to be really um, thoughtful about that. And I guess the last question is like, where are the benefits and what benefits do we get? And then based on what we are going to impose, um, you know, is that going to undercut any of the benefits? So I guess those are my questions. Terrific. Yeah. And I think you raised a couple of really interesting issues. And before we are done today, I'm going to come back to you and ask about use cases, because I, I think that's a great way to kind of finish this uh, conversation. But Michael, um, would love you to kind of build on that sort of, um, you know, obviously, a lot of this makes sense, um, the way a regulator would be looking at this treasury would be looking at it how how would you tweak the questions or even just sort of what are other questions we should be asking? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Rebecca, um, as always, sort of got, nailed it already. So I'll just rephrase it and call it get credit for it. But I think um, but I do think, you know, they have some very great questions to sort of follow through. And I, and I would sort of add on sort of how does this evolving infrastructure that is both financial and non-financial activity involve risks that are familiar to us and also different from existing communications infrastructure, which is ultimately what we're talking about is infrastructure here. Um, and so based on that, how do we, how can we manage these risks in light of what has worked with infrastructure in the past and the new risk management tools that are being developed? Um, you know, thinking through website safety, cybersecurity safety, um, all the things that we've been using and then all the tools that are out there, uh, like imagine regulating banks by saying you all need like 90% reserves because your website might get hacked instead of just saying, well, actually, you need something like Cloudflare <laughs> and you need audits. Uh, so I think it's knowing what's possible. And then also, and Rebecca alluded to this already as well, but what's the opportunity to do all of this better, um, including financial opportunity? You have native risk management that's probably less faulty than this in putting a switchboard operator. You know, we didn't keep switchboard operators to keep everybody safe so they could do KYC at every, every phone connection. Like a lot of this is automated and, and actually less faulty. I mean, I, I'd much 
rather, and this was something we did at FinCEN, this is why we brought in a digital identity advisor specifically, was looking across, seeing the amount of deep fakes, and, it's, and we see it evolving exponentially at this point around identity, that it turns out a bank just taking a snapshot of your photo doesn't tell you what they're going to do. Um, and it doesn't even tell you what they've done. It just tells you that they went to a DMV or a passport place. Um, whereas activity-based is much harder to spoof and much more reliable. And also, by the way, not so exclusive based on here's where you happen to be born. Um, like let's, let's hone in on the actual risks. And if you're able to create a financial system here that brings more people in, not based on whether they got a ride to the DMV or where they were born, but rather their activity and the fact that they haven't done anything malicious and that you can now watch monitor smart contracts to see a malicious smart contract loading and pause another smart contract before it happens, not wait for the teller at the HSBC in Mexico to, to check someone's identity before taking a, a box full of cash. Um, it's just, you're, you're actually reducing risk and bringing more people in. So how do we, how do we make the most of this? Jay, I feel like this is exactly like, so your sweet spot. What do you got for me? <laughs> so, I, would, I would ask actually one question. I'll boil it down to one question, which is how do we make the system more effective, right? The, the unique thing about the Bank Secrecy Act is that inherent in its enabling, you know, statutes and regulations is the notion of effectiveness. This is all about effectiveness of, of mitigating and, and um, uh, disrupting money laundering networks and, and enabling law enforcement to do that. And do any of these measures that are being contemplated um, make the system more effective? And if not, the answer should be fairly simple, it seems to me, within the framework that we have today. And, and I think part of what we have to also ask ourselves is if the BSA were being constructed today, would it look different. And I think it would in a digital world. We have sources of information. ISPs have identity information, not just um, not just uh, uh, financial institutions. We have IP addresses that give you tracking information on people. There's a ton of data out there that allows mitigation. And as we move from a native um, uh, physical world or analog world to native digital world, the system just looks different. And so the, the number one question we should always be asking when we're saying we want to do X, we want to extend the regulatory perimeter, we're not doing it just to do something. Is it effective? Is it leading to better outcomes? And if the answer is no, it's just leading to a bunch more data that nobody will ever use and creating vulnerabilities, why are we doing it? So I would focus like a laser beam on effectiveness more than anything else, um, because I think that will drive better better outcomes and better risk management. Interesting. I mean, Vincent itself put out a, the modernization, right? Consultation really just around this, you know, what can effectiveness look like from the BSA in sort of a modern world, Rebecca. So we've been focusing on, Oh, did treasury do this right? Or did they not? And you know, these right questions, but I want to say something that was sort of alluded to earlier when Jay was talking about the SROs, but like the industry has an opportunity now to show the right way to mitigate risk, right? Like this, just because there's no specific legislation doesn't mean like we should all sit around and wait for it. Um, and there are definitely great groups who are coming together, um, who are figuring out a lot of what to do specifically around this. And it goes to a lot of what um, Jay and Mike were saying about audits and cybersecurity and things like that. But like, now is the time for the industry to step up and say, this is what good risk mitigation looks like here. And some of it looks like sort of weeding out the Web2 systems that a lot of this is reliant upon, whether it be multi-sigs or centralized servers or things like that. Um, and if you have those, then having real, um, you know, cyber hack type of internal processes and, and things like that. So having somebody who understands good cybersecurity on your team and can put these things in place and then collaborate with the industry is something important that the industry can do right now um, in light of while all these policy discussions are going on. Rebecca, staying with you and sort of building on that, um, I invoke your, the work you're doing on use cases all the time. Okay. Um, I honestly think it's probably the most important work that's being done in the space. Um, we talked a lot about the the how, but less about the why maybe. Uh, give us like a little bit on sort of the why and what you found in the work that you're doing and, and, and honestly why you're doing it. 
Thanks. That's so nice. Um, so I am really passionate about the use case um, database that we're working on. It's called the Value Prop. You can see it at thevaluprop.io. It is an open website that has collected um, 42 use cases and over 400 applications that fall within those use cases. I think now we're at something like nine or 10 specific verticals, which are like healthcare, um, gaming, social impact, things like that. Um, and if people want to submit these various types of applications uh, to us, there's an open form um, that you can find on my Twitter. But more importantly, DeFi, while it is a really, um, I, and I've been working on it for a very long time, an amazing advent in the world of software. And as um, Mike said a number of times, really can democratize our current system and bring in more people. The use cases for these smart contract um, software-based systems has really grown to democratize all the different things we do uh, on the internet, whether it be sure finance, but also social media, art, um, the way we engage in even social impact work, giving. Um, there are a lot, even sustainability initiatives, um, and there's been a lot of transparency around all of those things, carbon credits, whatever it may be. Um, this is a much broader world that we're in now. I think DeFi was very exciting exploded onto the scene, you know, right after the last bear um, and has really carried us through to where we are today in many ways. But there is so much else going on in this system. And so to, to, you know, bring it back to what Mike was saying, like, we need to look at the full extent of what this system is both evolved into today and what may be evolving into in the future before we really put in uh, specific legislation um, because it could, as Jay was alluding to, not be effective in all the different ways that smart contract-based systems are are evolving. Amazing. Um, Rebecca Reddick, Michael Mosier, Jay Ramaswamy, thank you guys so much for joining me. Incredibly, incredible to have your expertise um, on here. Uh, folks, thank you for joining us. Uh, subscribe to the weekly roundup. Watch TRM Talks. We're now including this one. We'll be up to 55 on Apple and Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts and webcasts. You can even see the now famous Michael Mosier, Jay Ramaswamy on FinCEN's unhosted wallet NPRM, which is like our most uh, watched one ever. Um, but uh, yeah, no, thank you for joining us. And thank you to all of you for helping us build a safer financial system. Talk soon, guys. Thank you. <laughs>